As you take out your Bibles, turn if you would to Genesis chapter 7. So begin chapter 7. And again, uh, I would remind you that the Genesis account of the flood is perhaps the most attacked piece of scripture in the entire Old Testament because it calls into question uh, a theory primarily put forth by a number of geologists about 150 years or so ago that basically set about to explain that the earth that we live on in order to put forth the theory of Darwinistic evolution has to be billions of years old. And so that theory is built on uniformitarianism, which is a long way of saying things are as they are and always have been as they are with regard to processes. And so if that theory is true, then the world must be billions of years old. And if it is billions of years old, then it provides the time necessary for Darwinian evolution to perhaps have a chance at functioning. And as we continue this series in the flood of Noah, the reason that this is important to us as a Bible study is if you can't believe the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, then why should you believe anything that follows? And so as you read this account, you're forced to come to a couple of conclusions. One of them is that this is just simply a story. The other is that this is a very misguided attempt by some ancients to record science. The other is that this is actually accurate, and if we look at our world, we might find the evidence that it's actually true. And while I propose to give you enough science that you can do some of your own digging and thinking, I'm not attempting to prove the Genesis account in the sense that empirical evidence will be offered tonight so that you can just simply say, I know because Pastor Jeff said so and proved it scientifically. But I do hope that the science that's presented to you over the next couple of weeks will be sufficient for you to realize that a reasonable theory is that God did exactly what he said he did. And there are plenty of geologic forces, there's plenty of geologic evidence, there's plenty of science to back up the belief that in fact God created the heavens and the earth and then he completely destroyed what he created via a catastrophic event called the flood of Noah. So as we dig into chapter 7 tonight, the first 16 verses, we continue this series and it's important to take all of it. Because each of these uh, specific studies that we'll do in the flood of Noah have another part of science, in essence, that's called into question. And so in order to do justice to the passage as God has recorded for us in his word, then we need to take the time necessary uh, to dig in to each of these passages as we come to them. So this will be a five-part series. Tonight's part two. Uh, you can watch part one. And we'll make our way all the way through chapter 9 in doing so. Because all of these uh, pertain to this one single event. It's the longest single event recorded in all of the Bible. And so there's a reason that God spent that much time. Uh, and I believe because it would ultimately be important, especially in our day and time, uh, when God is called into question by supposed proof that he basically did not do what he said he did. And so let's pray and ask God to bless us as we study. Father, again, if we were to just simply come and talk, it would afford little. But we're asking your Holy Spirit to be the interpreter of these words that you authored. Lord, likely through Noah and his sons, recorded later by Moses. Uh, Lord, but these words that are inspired by you, as you recorded the account of the early beginnings of this earth, and then its destruction in this catastrophic event called the Flood, we pray that you bless us, Lord, with understanding, open our minds to think correctly of the evidence that lies before us around the world. Lord, as we study, would you bless us with your presence here in this place? In Jesus' name, amen. 
verse 1, And then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household. And you'll find that if you talk about the flood of Noah and Noah's ark, most people who do not know the Lord will immediately go, You're one of those. Or something to that effect. You actually believe that God put a family inside of a barge some 500 feet long, 80 feet tall, and 40 feet wide, and floated it around in some kind of a disturbed sea for a year, and then let them out on dry ground. That, that is roughly what they will say. They will call into question your sanity, how they will call into question your intelligence, your ability to discern even the most minute details in the world that we currently live on. And because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation, you should take with you seven of each clean animal, male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female. All this talk of gender neutralizing uh, the Bible is going to be very, very, very difficult in light of the original language because throughout the entirety of the Bible, including Jesus himself, made it very clear that there is a distinct difference between men and women. Uh, and you don't have to look too far to figure that one out. But he says, And also seven of each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, and so now God gives an additional waiting period of time, a time of grace, a final few moments for preparation, for repentance, uh, that, that He is going to bring upon the earth something that has never been seen uh, again, nor had it been seen prior to this. And I will cause it to rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, the moment you say this, hydrologists go into their wild extrapolation of the data that's currently available that there's no way that anywhere on the face of the earth at this point in time that we could have ever had 40 days worth of rain and 40 nights worth of rain because there's not enough water vapor contained in our atmosphere to do so and again we'll look at these things tonight because there actually is a fairly simple explanation for it uh, and we'll look at what God actually says about how he did these things because he did not only make it rain but he also opened up the fountains of the deep. He did something that's not been done before and has not been done since. But we have it talked about fairly regularly, very specifically here in the middle of our country, because underneath the center of Wyoming and specifically in Montana, uh, a little bit of northern uh, Arizona and Nevada, that corner of the world, there's a gigantic caldera. It's a super volcano. And the reason that you said... <laughs> Yellowstone National Park actually exists is because of the very close proximity of the Earth's magma to the surface of the Earth, and it results in something fairly interesting, which we all pay money to go see in our park fees, and that is hundreds and thousands of springs where water boils up from inside of the Earth to the surface of the Earth, forming things like Lake Yellowstone and the Yellowstone River. So people immediately say, well, it can't happen. There's just no way. I propose to you that there are a lot of things that people say can't happen that not only can God do, God has done. And so, I will destroy from the face of the earth, notice what he says, all living things that I have made. He makes it very clear what he's going to do. And so if there was such a thing, then what we ought to find within that fossil record, within that laid down sediment, within all of that which is left behind, is the record of billions upon billions upon billions, even trillions of dead things laid down in layers on the surface of the earth, and it should cover the entire surface of the earth. So we're going to look and see if that's actually the case. And Noah did all according to the Lord that he had commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. And so Noah and his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. In other words, that seven days came and went, and they said, God wasn't kidding, we're getting ready to go. We're out of here. 
and of the clean animals, the animals that run clean, of the birds and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark of Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on a day that on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The first of the very extreme things that I think we'll see quite easily, we find evidence of all over the face of the earth. And the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on that very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of the son with them entered the ark. So God says, this is what I'm going to do, and God does it. And the thing that's always interesting to me is people instantaneously put this into a modern context and they think of the launching of a ship and it's sitting there in a dry dock and it slides out on this long ramp and it's launched into water and that is not at all what's pictured here. Basically, God is saying nearly instantaneously, water is going to spring forth from the ground. The ground is going to fade away. Uh, there are going to be catastrophic events that will occur that will instantaneously cause water uh, to cause this barge to float. And so it's just going to be floating instantaneously nearly. And the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. <clears throat> and on that very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, as they enter the ark, they had every beast after its kind, the cattle after their kind, the creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind. And notice he's being very specific. He's not saying that every kind, just after its kind. In other words, a representation of the basic kinds, the basic species, the basic kingdom, phylum, genus, species, order of each kind. He's not saying that every type of hummingbird, just a representation of hummingbirds. Not every type of seagull, just a representation of the seagulls. He's not talking about every kind of penguin. Uh, there weren't, you know, Gentoo penguins and rock hoppers and emperors and king penguins. They were just a representation of penguins. And the same is true with dogs. And the same is true with cats. Why they would have put cats on the Arctic, I don't know. Sorry. My... My cat phobia gets to me every once in a while. No, I, I like big cats, but they eat you. And so the kinds of animals we see getting onto the ark, we do not see every last representative that is on the earth today on the ark. It's completely unnecessary. And they went into the ark, Noah two by two, and all of the flesh with which is in the breath of life. Basically a representation uh, of the breath, of everything that has breath of life. Interestingly enough, there's a project called the Ark Project. And it involves a number of caves. Uh, two of them are in Norway. And there's one here in the United States. Inside of it are stored all kinds of genetic material, including virtually every seed known to man. And, and they're there in the advent that we decide we lose our collective minds and countries nuke one another so that all of the basic species of life that are currently on the face of the earth could be replicated. It's kind of a Jurassic Park made out of plants kind of thing. And so these things are not far-fetched. And we kind of take a little bit of what we like and we leave what we don't like with regard to the science. And there... They entered male and female, all flesh, and went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. So the first thing that we see is, and all your house. And so there's kind of an indication here in the initial opening sentences of chapter 7 that it's almost like Noah's family got saved because Noah was righteous. And while there is a picture here of, of what we would call a wonderful representation of the righteousness of God in a family leading to the salvation of others, that's true, but each one of them had to exercise their own faith. In other words, it was accounted to Noah as righteousness, but each one of the members of his family also had to take the additional step of receiving what had been said to them. And so some people will use this to see, well, you know, if you just are a godly family, then everyone in your family will eventually come to faith in Christ. 
while that is true that that is the best way for your whole family to have an opportunity to be saved, having an opportunity is not the same as exercising that opportunity. In other words, having the decision that, that you're, you're going to make the decision to believe yourself personally. And so they exercised that saving faith. Each one of them voluntarily entered the ark. Noah's obedience led to a promise that was given to him and to his family, but each member of the family had to enter the ark on their own accord. And so that opportunity, not equaling the acceptance of the opportunity. Uh, No doubt Noah was a man of great wealth. No doubt Noah was a, a man who's Uh, at least in that region that he lived in, was a man of some fame and notoriety. After all, he'd taken 120 years to construct this gigantic wooden object, which would have been, uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, the largest wooden object perhaps ever constructed uh, until maybe the late 1800s. But it still would be a very, very, very large wooden object uh, with regard to something that floated on the ocean. So, Uh, God promises Noah and his family that as long as they voluntarily chose to get into the ark, they would be saved. The next thing we see is kind of this picture of, you know, it's like all aboard. Everybody, it's time to go. And again, it's interesting that God programs these animals in essence, and I believe very clearly through uh, the mechanism of navigation, migration, Uh, the ability for these animals to know they need to be somewhere at some point in time for a very specific reason. And we certainly see that in the animal world today. Uh, You can pay a whole lot of money to go watch a bunch of caribou migrate uh, in Alaska. Uh, You can can take a train, you'll get on a very large, uh, basically an off-road vehicle and travel out in the middle of the tundra and you can sit there and all of a sudden here comes a herd of caribou. And they travel the same migration route, so much so that they completely trample the tundra. And you can see the same thing in the bird world. You can see the same thing uh, in, in the rodent world. You know, everybody goes, well, there's a bunch of lemmings. They went off the cliff. There's a reason that lemmings travel together. They have a migratory instinct. And once that time comes, they all will do pretty much anything to get where they need to go, no matter what's in their way. So God still programs animals uh, to take those kind of leaps of faith, if you will, uh, in their pairs and in their kinds. And again, they still travel in pairs, they still travel in kinds as they migrate today. So no doubt God using that, uh, what we would call a migratory instinct, to get them to do exactly what he needed them to do, which in this case was to get it uh, onto the ark and be led onto the ark by Noah. Some people will say, you know, this, is, this had to have been a local flood. And this is one of those passages that kind of lays that to waste. Because if this were a local flood and there were some place that these animals could go to be saved, then this whole passage doesn't need to be in your Bible. So it's very clear because of the wording, and we'll get to it in a little bit, that God uses here that this flood was going to destroy everything. And when God uses the term everything in the context of the original language that's in this passage, he literally means everything. He's not talking about most of everything. He's talking about everything, all there is. And so God is going to bring a catastrophism on the face of the earth, and he intends for us to understand it that way, which is the reason why he uses all these various ways to describe the, the life that's on the face of the earth. So it's the things that would, we would call domesticated animals, the things that we would call rodents, the things that we would call reptiles, all that we would call birds. Everything's going to end up on the ark that God wants a representation of to, to be able to save, in essence, uh, the creation itself, which he created, remember, very good. Amen? When God initially uh, performed his act of creation in Genesis chapter 1, every single thing God created was created not just good, but very good. So he didn't mess up with the creation. He didn't mess up with the animals. He didn't mess up with mankind. Mankind messed up. Mankind took the the beautiful opportunity to make a choice and makes the wrong choice. And so God is now going to, in essence, kind of do a a, a bit of a do-over, as it were. He's going to give those who are willing the opportunity to be saved, 
and then he's going to make sure that his creation goes back to that state uh, that he intended it to, at least in as much as we uh, now see it. If you look at this, the clean animals versus the unclean animals here, remember that at this point in time, there are no Jewish people on the face of the earth in that sense. They would come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would get the name from Jacob. His name would be changed to Israel. But they were all of the lineage necessary to call them Semitic. And so all of these people that are on the boat are the, the, the progenitors, if you will, of the Jewish race, but they are not yet called that. So there is no sacrificial system the clean animals and the unclean animals are just talking about what God would do later. And then ultimately, he's even going to remove that. So when you get to that famous picture we have in our minds from studying the book of Acts, as Peter is there in Jaffa and he's up on the roof and all of a sudden here comes this blanket and there's all this food on it and he looks on there, man, it's a bunch of unclean things. And God corrects his theology and says, look, under the New Testament, there's no such thing as unclean. What I have made clean, it's clean. So you're cool, you're good to go. But at this point in time, God is preserving those animals, which he will later divide into clean and unclean. And he says, I want you to take <clears throat> some of each, each of them so that when we get to that place, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, that Israelite system of clean and unclean animals, that you'll have all the ones that you need. And so the countdown begins, T minus seven days and counting. I, I don't know how many of you, <clears throat> when you were uh, perhaps younger, if you're my age, remember we used to get up very early in the morning to watch the, the various rocket launches beginning with the, you know, the original Mercury and, and Atlas capsules and then finally ended up with the Apollo moon launches and then later the space shuttle but there was always a countdown, and very often the countdown started the day before. So they'd be in a 24-hour clock, and you get down to the last you know, hour or so, and then finally it'd be the final 10 seconds, and there was always that countdown, and it's T minus 10, 9, 8, and they would count it down. And that's in, in essence what God has done here. God has basically said, look, this is when it's going to happen. I'm telling you exactly when it's going to happen. Make no mistake about it. I told you it was going to come when, when Methuselah dies. Methuselah's dead. They've had an opportunity to honor him. He, he's been, uh, his remains have been dealt with. Uh, all the animals are in their stall. Basically, he's saying, okay, it, it's, it's on. And here's when it's going to happen. So it's the same as in a rocket launch. They're now going to make sure that that rocket is loaded with fuel. That the astronauts are on board. And it's the same thing with the ark. Everybody needs to be where they need to be. And we're going to close this door. And once that door is closed, this thing is going to float. So get on board. It basically, it's now or never. I'm going to cleanse the earth. And when he begins to talk here, there's a couple of, of Hebrew words that are used that are only used here in the book of Genesis. And he uses koel yoem. And in using that, that two-word phrase, he's basically saying, there is going to be no thing living after I get done doing this. There won't be anything left on the earth. So whatever's inside is saved and whatever's outside is dead. And it's a picture of salvation. You're either in or out. You're a saint or an ain't. You're going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's, there's no middle ground. There was no place for someone to be on the outside of the ark and float around for a year. There wasn't anyone who was going to be on the inside that could be unrighteous. You're in or you're out. And so he pictures that in, in the phraseology that's used here uh, in, in verses 4 and 5. And so everybody's on board. The world is about to get cleansed by this deluge, this flood. Which brings us to a place when you start thinking about it. And remember, there's now or never, there's in or out, the, everything that could be done has been done. Uh, and you always get these questions from people when they talk about the Genesis flood. Well, you know, God could have waited another day. God could have waited another week. God could have waited another year. Why did God do this at all? God was excruciatingly gracious in the fact that it took 120 years to build the ark in the first place. Then he says, look, I'm going to tell you exactly when it's going to happen. Then he says, I'm going to give you seven more days. And then on top of that, 
He, he to, the, to the minute, says, look, anyone who will commit themselves to righteousness can be in. And if you don't like that, there is another option. So there was choice. God was fair. God simply honored the choices made by the people uh, as they received the same information. You can imagine the story going, yeah, well, Noah said if we don't get in the ark, we're going to die. And ultimately, it wasn't Noah who said it. It was God who said it. And so they had to make a choice between what God said and what they thought and they wanted. People will talk about when all this took place almost indefinitely. And I want to be really careful with the dating of this particular event because I think there are a couple of things that we need to look at and we need to look at them in context of what the scriptures actually say. And so if you take this straight by what exists uh, in scripture without any other information, the only thing that you can come up with is what you have before you, which means uh, that the biblical data, as you compile it and you look at it, the flood came on the earth, 1,655 years, one month and 17 days after the creation account. And the reason that that's important is because the weak link in all of this is not what the Bible does say, but what the Bible doesn't say. We do not know for a fact that every single generation is included. We also do not know when their exact birthday was. So we don't know if every child lived as all of the rest of the patriarchs did for extremely long periods of time. We do not know whether all of them are listed. We know that their family names are listed. So there is a place for one to look at the data and say the earth could be as little as 7,000 years old or roughly 7,000 years old today. But there is also enough room to say that perhaps if you went to the very most extreme example of making these people all live as long as Methuselah, and every last one of them had children that we don't know about, and those children lived a long time, and we only have a representation of each family, uh, there, there is room for, a, for an additional maybe 10,000 years in there or so. But that's it. There is no room for 3.7 billion years. You can't squeeze it in, and we'll look at all the various ways that that's done theologically next week. So the earth, I believe, is immensely younger than most geologists would tell you today. Though there are a ton of Christian geologists on the face of the earth, thousands of them, who hold the same view that I hold, that the earth does not, by necessity, need to be billions of years old to support the scientific data that is collected today. Because we know that data has been tampered with by this particular event. And we'll look at those things next time as well. So when did it happen? The only thing that we know, 1,655 years plus that one month and 17 days after the creation account. We know that part, but we do not know all the intervening pieces of time that are in that period of time. So chances are it is probably very close to the number of years that are listed currently in your Bible, which is about 7,000. Could be as much as 10. So if you don't like that answer, take it to God. People say, well, don't you know how old? No, I don't know how. I wasn't there. I only look old. <laughs> that's the part with determining anything that's ancient. You know, and we, we, we joke about and we kid about how things are dated. We're going to go into that in some detail next week, so I won't bore you with that tonight. But the, the, the earth itself is extremely difficult to date. And so we'll, we'll look at the common dated, dating methods, radiometric dating and C14 carbon dating next week. Where did all this water come from? People say it's just a, it's an insane amount of water. There's just no possible way. You have to look back at the, the actual account of the creation because if you remember, there's waters that were above the firmament 
and waters that were below the firmament, and they were called the great deep. And so there, there seems to be a separation of two locations of water, sources of water, if you will. One would have been water that was in the atmosphere, what we would call atmospheric water, normally in the form of clouds. Uh, and, and the other is water that's in the, in the earth itself. Right now, we happen to have an earth that has very significant amounts of variation in depths of ocean seafloor and altitude of mountains. And so when you look at the earth, if you were to push all of the mountains into the sea, you were to bring all of the seafloor up to a common level, if you made the earth a little bit flatter than it is right now, there would be less than 2,000 feet of water over the entire surface of the earth. So the fact that we have things like the Marianas Trench or the Marianas Deep or the Carmel Canyon or the La Jolla Canyon, you look at these things that are miles deep with miles of water in them, they didn't necessarily have to be in existence at that point in time. We'll look at that in just a little bit. You, you, you see, we make assumptions based on what we see today. But if what we see today is not what existed then, then those assumptions automatically come subject to question. Where did the water come from? It came from the deep. That's what we're told. Uh, we're, we're told that it came from two sources, one above the earth and one on the earth and in the earth. So there's waters above and there's water, in other words, the atmospheric heavens. And then there's waters that are in the firmament or below the firmament. So you have the face of the earth and there's a significant amount of water in there. Any of you that have ever studied volcanism, you know that there's a couple of things that happens when a volcano erupts. And one of them, which is the most destructive of all the forces of a volcano, is a pyroclastic flow. That pyroclastic flow is not just molten lava. It's water and rock and steam. And so when volcanic eruptions occur, almost 70%, globally, 70% of the material that comes out of a volcano is, guess what? H2O about 70%. The rest is magma and rock and dust and all those kind of things. So 30% is what we would call solids. 70% is liquid in the form of steam and actual water. So before you start thinking, well, there's not enough water down there, you have to ask your question, really, do we actually know that? We actually don't. And in fact, there are all kinds of places on the earth where you can go and you can find rivers emerging directly out of the ground. You know, we think of rivers because here in the United States of America, specifically, almost all of our major river systems have their origins, either like in the Sierra Nevadas, top of the mountains, you have a very small creek, that small creek goes into a bigger creek, that bigger creek goes into a smaller river, that smaller river goes into a bigger river, that bigger river makes its way down through the San Joaquin Valley, it ultimately ends up out in the ocean, or it goes underground. Did you hear what I just said? Or it goes underground. Four of our major rivers here in California actually don't go to the ocean, they just go out into the Central Valley and disappear. So that water is still going someplace. It's going into what we call aquifers. Those aquifers are used to recharge groundwater. If you go, for instance, out to San Bernardino County, the whole valley floor of San Bernardino is nothing but a gigantic lake. And in fact, the water from Big Bear Lake uh, used to be impounded up there and kept up there, and they made, a, in essence, a, a pact with the city of Redlands that if they were going to send water down to Redlands to all those orange groves that used to exist out there, that the other thing they would have to do is let some of it go back into the river valley so that it could recharge the water because most of the water that is used in that area of, the, of San Bernardino County actually comes from wells. It doesn't come from impounded water, which we would call lakes. It comes from the ground. So there's a lot of water down there. This happens to be the tributary, the major tributary of the River Jordan. And if you see that nice big cave there in the back, that river used to come out of that cave. In fact, it now comes out from a source about 200 yards, uh, which would be to your right, my left, generally speaking, uh, in that photo. But this is the major tributary of the River Jordan. And it flows directly out of the ground. It has no source past it. 
Uh, it comes from, in essence, the aquifer that's actually in northern you know, or in southern Syria, northern, uh, northern Israel, and in southern Lebanon. And there are not one of these, there are not two of these, there are three of these rivers that occur just like this, and they form almost the entire Jordan River. The Jordan River feeds into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is one of the largest bodies of fresh water on the planet Earth. And it's a source of almost a third of Israel's drinking water. It comes out of the ground. And you think it's not a bunch. Those are the falls that are about 300 yards from the source. It all just pops out of the ground. So there is a lot of water under the face of the earth. And people say, wow, you know, I just don't, I don't believe that God could do that. God can do anything. And so we always have to keep in mind that whether we can explain everything he did or cannot explain everything he did, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask and think, but he can also do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we know we think or can even imagine. So God is able through miracles to do all of this, but he's given us enough reason uh, to believe that what we think is quite reasonable. And so God uses all kinds of things because he's the uncaused cause of everything. As, as you think of these things, most of you probably know that the center of the earth is believed to be a molten core uh, of extremely dense rock, highly uh, impregnated with iron, uh, it spins at a fairly high velocity. That high velocity causes electromagnetism, and most of you know that the Earth actually has an electromagnetic field that surrounds it. That electromagnetic field actually prohibits the massive amounts of radiation that come from the sun from striking the Earth's surface. So there's an engine in there, if you will. That engine produces heat. That heat turns water at 212 degrees into steam. And steam pressurizes very, very, very quickly, and it comes out of the surface of the earth in geysers and hot springs and all kinds of stuff. So we still have a pressurized water system that exists under the surface of the earth to this very day. The only thing is that most of the water that was there is now in the oceans. And so the world that we see today, um, probably with some reason... Uh, or some reasonableness, we can say that the water that was mostly underground today is mostly above ground. Um, but there is still a tremendous hydraulic ability for water to be moved and to be moved between that and thermodynamically, which means by heat, you, you can have those waters pressurized and pushed up all over the world. And so it still happens. And it's amazing to me what people will say they don't believe from the Bible but when Tom Cruise says it in the Church of Scientology, somehow it makes sense. And I'll give you an example. Because, you see, you can either believe that maybe God worked in some ways that you don't quite understand, but there are natural principles uh, like tectonics and faulting and volcanism. We're going to get to most of those next week. You, you can either say that he could have easily used those things and some additional structures within the earth that maybe don't exist today, but are not far-fetched. Or you can believe, as Tom Cruise does, um, that there is a Lord Zenu who came from a distant planet. He was actually the galact leader of the Galactic Federation, and he brought billions of his people from his planet, and he put them on the earth, around volcanoes, and then dropped hydrogen bombs into the... This is legitimately what Scientologists believe created humankind on the earth and demons. So people say, well, you know, they're fine. So you kind of have to, you know, give God a little bit of a break here. I think it's a little more reasonable to believe that God used plate tectonics and volcanism, uh, hydraulic pressures within the earth faulting, those types of things, to do some things that we don't see today, but it isn't anywhere near as far-fetched as what Scientology teaches. And if you notice, there was a, for lack of a better word, an expose done on the Church of Scientology. It ran for quite, actually, it still runs and reruns. And, and as you watch that, 
So the Church of Scientology has now gone to the place of actually putting little advertisement about, do you want to know what we believe? We thought so. Please don't watch it. Because <laughs> it really is legitimately crazy. L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction author. He wrote science fiction stories, which has been turned into some other belief system. God said, this is how I did it. And I have no reason to disbelieve that he could do it that way. So when you think on these things, I'm going to give you a couple of principles that we still use to this day. They've been in use for more than a thousand years. The first principle is Occam's razor. Occam's razor simply says that if you're examining evidence, if you look at something that is a principle or a theory, and you're looking for solutions to that, that the hypothesis which explains the data that you see that is the simplest and causes the fewest problems must also be the most likely. Well, I'm thinking DC-8s flying from a planet someplace that we don't know, filled with space aliens, dropped into volcanoes with hydrogen bombs, is a little more far-fetched than God just simply created the heavens and the earth. So in that sense, you've got to do a lot of guesstimating to come up with the whole alien thing. So when someone says, well, I think, because that, by the way, is one of the most accepted ways that both the technology for the pyramids existed, and that includes both the Egyptian and the Mayans, or that maybe God is very intelligent. He imparted that intelligence to humankind. The second principle is the principle of least action. Almost everything works uh, well, everything does work by the, by the two basic primary laws of thermodynamics, that things will decay over time. That's the second law. But the law of least action basically says that uh, if you expend effort and energy on anything, the thing that expends the least amount of effort and the least amount of energy is also the most likely. So if you have to have all kinds of systems and mechanisms to explain the data, generally the more complex it gets, the less likely it is. The third one is a theological principle. And that's what we call the economy of miracles. God can and does do, still to this day, miracles. He's capable of doing them anytime he pleases. In other words, if he wanted to just outright create the earth the way it is, make it look like it does, and do all kinds of miraculous things, never done before, never going to be done again, he could do that. But in the economy of miracles, God uses miracles very selectly for his glory and for his glory alone. So he does not default to doing miracles. The economy of miracles says that if God's going to do a miracle, it's because there is no other way for that to occur. So when you look at the data, when you look at the world that we live in, you can see that there are a whole bunch of ways that God could have accomplished these things by simply manipulating the matter that he created, the earth that he created, the systems that he created, the, the entire planet that he created with the very things he created it with. Faults, tectonic plates, volcanoes. Groundwater aquifers, oceans, seas, springs, rivers. He created all those. He knows where every last one of them is. So he didn't need to do miracles, but he can do miracles if he needs to, to fill in the blanks. But if he's going to do them, he's going to leave evidence that he has done them. And the fact that he has not left evidence of a miraculous intervention, but in fact he has left a record of how he did this, and it covers the entire globe, it leads us to believe that what he's saying here is exactly what he did. That the evidence actually speaks to the fact that he didn't just do an outright miracle, but did literally break up the fountains of the deep. He literally did cause the water that was under the earth to burst forth to the surface of the earth. He did use the core of the earth and its heat to pressurize steam and water to force it to the surface of the earth, mixing it with all of the existing 
uh, oceans and rivers and everything that was on the surface. So, you know, people, oh, it would have boiled everyone alive. Yes, it would. If you happened to be, you know, inside of a geyser, that would have been a bad thing. But God doesn't have to do those things. You know, there's only one place on the face of the earth that all that water is coming from. It's very likely that this was a catastrophic event, covered the face of the earth. There was volcanism going on. There were geysers going on. There were springs of water erupting. There was all these things simultaneously happened because that's what the text says. So don't accuse God. A lot of people just accuse God of being almost, you know, loony. It's like, no, he couldn't have done it. Sure he could. Just because we don't see it today doesn't mean he couldn't do it in time past. That's where that economy of miracles comes in. God can and God does do things daily that we don't understand. He saved me. I don't understand that. Amen? He saved you. If you're here tonight and you're a child of God, that in and of itself is a miracle. Because unless he drew you to himself, you would have never found him. So God did a miracle by the work of the Holy Spirit of drawing you to himself so that you would understand that he's there and he loves you. And all of a sudden the light bulb went on and oh yeah, by the way, I sent my son into the world that you would believe in him and be saved. That's a miracle. So God both does miracles and he uses natural things. In this case, he starts plates moving. He creates uh, abduction, subduction. He, he makes continents slide underneath one another. He uplifts plates. He does all those things. Look, he's God. And so if he wants to move, the, remember he created the entire universe in the span of six days and then rested on the seventh. So he wouldn't have any problem uh, taking care of this particular situation by putting to work forces that we have not seen since. Did God make it rain for 40 days and 40 I believe he did. And furthermore, I believe the climate of the earth is not like you see it today. And the reason I believe that it's not because I want to believe it. It's what the evidence shows. If you travel to Antarctica, you know, most of you probably realize that Antarctica, much of it is covered by more than a mile of ice. But underneath that, there's some rock. There's an actual continent down there. And interestingly enough, on that continent, there are tropical and subtropical plant fossils. You kind of have a tough time explaining that if it was always ice you have a little bit of a difficulty explaining why there are woolly mammoths and mastodons and things in the middle of the United States and you find tropical species up near the North Pole. Those things are difficult to explain unless you believe that the earth, maybe at some point in time, isn't like we see it today. How did God do it? We don't have all the answers. But I believe the climate was generally warmer. I also believe that there was not the wind and the cloud systems that we have currently. There wasn't a need for them. I believe that God could easily cause water to burst forth out of the depths of the earth. But the good news in all of this is that God saves. When you look at this story, as crazy as the, as the catastrophic event itself is, on the very same day, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, his three wives, his sons with them, entered the ark. They were saved. They just obeyed God. They didn't question God. They believed God. It's one of the messages of the book of Genesis. You know, sometimes, folks, I think God leaves things that seem impossible to us because it forces us into a corner. We are forced to either believe God or disbelieve God. The book of Genesis is, do you believe me, material. Do you believe God? I believe God. The fact that I can't explain everything that's on the face of the earth actually is not a problem for me anymore. It used to be. It used to be. And so I get the reason why people question. But as I began to look at the evidence, I go, you know, there's actually an explanation for that. I had a young man come up to me, that was probably 10 years ago, and he says, wow, you know, it's just, it's just impossible, the fossil evidence. And I said, let's talk about the fossil evidence for a minute. Why are there not 
billions of human fossils on the face of the earth. There's trillions of everything else. Well, man's only been here for millions of years. I said, track with me. In 1965, there were exactly 3.25 billion people on the face of the earth. The population has doubled since 1965. Now imagine that you're in a world where people live a thousand years and there is no birth control. How many billions of people do you think would have been on the face of the earth in just thousands of years? The estimates range as high as more than a hundred billion people. And yet the rarest thing on the face of the earth is a human fossil. There's almost none. And there are only three complete ones. One of those, by the way, was found in a cave in Israel just recently. The reason being is they didn't all die in the flood. They were drowned. They were buried. And human bodies float on water for a very long time. And then they turned into just parts. So they weren't catastrophically buried. Animals were. People weren't. They would have thought. They would have floated around. They would have tried to swim. They would have done all kinds of things. It would have been the very last things to go down. So in those rock layers, underneath all that sediment, it's almost no people. They're just things to think about. Things to ponder. And while you're doing that, just ponder the grace of God. Because He is good. His mercy endures forever. Amen? Father, thank You for Your goodness to us, Your blessings upon us. Thank you for the evidence that we do see and the things that we can look at on the face of the earth that remind us that it's very, very possible and very likely that you not only did exactly what you said you did, but there are even naturalistic mechanisms whereby we can see those things have happened. And so, Lord, bless us with understanding. Uh, make, our, make our minds susceptible to your Spirit speaking truth into them. Help our hearts to always return to the fact that uh, you are God and you can do anything, anytime. Uh, we ask that you would bless us, Lord. We thank you for your word and the power that it has to instruct us. Pray that you would bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.